0: Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon.
1: This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. And I'm Kikita Kaori. And we have an episode for you after a week break. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about villages.
0: Yes, rural life in Rogan. Uh, We have some news, though, so we're going to start with that.
1: Yep, the last LCG set for the current living card game is out. It's called Shadow of Fulang, and it is a cooperative set. And so if you are not a competitive card game player, you might want to be thinking about giving this set a try so you can join the armies of rokugum fighting against the shadowlands because that's kind of what it's about
0: it sounds really interesting i'd love to know how it actually works but obviously we're gonna have to have a chance to play it and and, well other people will play it unfortunately i don't i don't have the i don't have the yeah i'm sorry but (laughs) i'd love to hear how it goes
1: it does have a solo mode, so if you okay. do have a friend with it, you can play it by yourself. Nice. But that is not this side.
0: <laughs> this week, we're going to be looking at rural villages in Rogan. what it's like, what kind of things go on there, and how you can integrate that into your games. So to start off with, we're going to look at what a Rokagani village is like.
1: So... We get some information in Emerald Empire. We know that all the land in the empire is technically owned by the emperor. And then he has it so that all the clans, all the way down to the peasants, are tenants of the emperor's land. So historically, this was the original setup in Japan in the early Nara period. The emperor owns all the land and sent it out. However, what was happening was that there was no incentive for the villagers to develop new fields, increase the tax base. And when the taxman came around asking for taxes to get the emperor's share, the villagers just ran away because they could. So in 723 to and 743 Changes were made to that to allow permanent private ownership of reclaimed land. Okay. That means if you can wring the taxes out of the land, if you can take over new land by developing it, you got to be the owner of the land as long as you paid the taxes to the emperor. This directly led to the undermining of imperial power and the rise of the samurai.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now, other people, not the emperor, had tax tax base, <laughs> had, had money coming into them. And, and all they needed to do to get it was be strong enough to make other people do it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of the hilarious things that I found because I was like, when I was – first interested in samurai and i'm kind of i'm going to read up on the actual japanese history and every single one of those books says first we need to talk about land tax and i was like really <laughs> that sounds so boring but no it's 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 actually absolutely crucial to how things came obviously rocky Island different i just thought that was an interesting note
1: mm-hmm.
0: obviously there are lots of different types of villages The main one we're going to be talking about are the farming villages, the rice farming villages, because that is going to be far and away the most common type of village. But there were also fishing villages, there were mining villages, lumber villages, things like that, and there were villages which, either as a side kind as as a side form of income, would also be doing things like pottery or salt production making tatami mats uh, other crafts like that and and silk production and so some of them that's going to be a side thing they they when their rice harvest is over and they don't have much to do they start doing this other thing but in some cases it was like the main source of income but we are going to be looking mostly at rice farming villages
1: so where do villages form they tend to farm along rivers or in broader river valleys or on coastal plains. Once you start getting away from those areas, you're going to start having to develop terraces, irrigation, and those things totally happened. It just takes more effort to sustain a village there. So they start farming in the low places and then spread out. The farms were clustered closely in fertile areas. Uh, so those areas are just going to be dense back-to-back farms. Yeah. Yeah, you know, very, very commonly.
0: Each actual village, that is going to be a small cluster of houses, which is going to be surrounded by a wide expanse of fields. So that can be anything from hundreds to possibly over a thousand people. The smaller end of that would be called a uh, Buraku, or Hamlet, and that might be only four or five houses, so four or five f- families. And anything beyond that is a muda or a village, and that could be up to 100 or so houses.
1: Now, a lot of new villages form in areas that were previously farmed and then abandoned. This could be due to the villagers dying or a war or a temporary drop in fertility in the lands. It could happen because of rumors of something bad happening there. Um shadowlands incursions it could be it could be anything that causes the village area to be abandoned and they pick up and leave but these empty fields especially if they've got developed infrastructure like terraces and stuff can then be reprocessed and then uh new villagers can move in because so much land is developed even if it's not all inhabited right um Villages don't always stay in the same place for a really long time. That's that's actually rare. Um, they move and they grow and they disappear and they come back. It's been a long period of history. The cities are tend to pin places down to a long period of time because you actually have big infrastructure that can't pick up and move. So,
0: One of the interesting things about rice production particularly is that unlike a lot of other crops – the more you grow rice in a particular place, the better that soil is for growing rice. It's it's due to the particular way that the, you know, the nutrients and the way the it gets flooded and, and all that kind of stuff. It's really, really rather interesting. But that's another reason why villages that used to be, or places that used to be very developed and used to have a lot of rice farming are good to use again because it can take a few years for a completely new uncultivated area to be really good for farming. But if there's a place people used to grow rice a lot, then the soil there is good for growing rice. And so that's going to be a very likely reason why you get these places settled and resettled.
1: Now, villages that are attractive and peaceful and well-managed will attract people, and they'll also have babies. And if people coming in are allowed to, those people will settle. Rice agriculture is extremely labor-intensive, okay? So having more people means that more of those fields can be planted. And that means more of those fields can be harvested and the village will become wealthier. So it, it can let them grow. Villages that are poorly managed that aren't Safe or are struck with internal strife, will have people flee. They will die, and otherwise, those villages will will shrink. And again, because rice growing is so labor intensive, less people means you can't plant as much rice during planting season, and that means you can't harvest as much har- rice during harvest season, and the village will grow poorer and it will continue to shrink. This lets people who aren't there like samurai and lords and stuff, have an idea of what's going on in the village, even though they are far away. Mm-hmm. Because they can see how much rice gets turned over in taxes. And, you know, they can see on a number. It's what they do about it. That depends. But they can see it if everything is working the way it should.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's not even that the it's a, a labor-intensive process which it is but the more effort it, that is put into each individual rice plant the more you get out so adding more people always gives you a better yield you compare that to wheat farming where you sow the seeds you, you plow the field you sow the seeds and then there's not a lot you can do to improve the harvest so there's this much you can get out of this much land and that's it mm-hmm. whereas rice farming you can have way more people and that that does change the dynamics quite a lot
1: absolutely and also you don't have to leave things fallow for so long with right
0: no no
1: so in wheat f- farming there there's just a maximum capacity that the land can handle yep and it is it, it's reached pretty quickly until you start getting more intensive methods of agriculture whereas uh, you know because you want to leave fields fallow and if you add more people, they're going to want to plant the fallow fields and then nutrients get dried up. Does that make sense? Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. In rice farming, because there's going to be a lot of land that has been developed and abandoned. So you have places for it to spread to, and more hands makes more crops, um, you get this different cycle where more people gets you an improvement of the yield.
0: It also... Another thing we need to kind of think about is the, the way that these farmers and the villagers feel about each other. Cause the issue with a farm is that you have this one harvest generally, maybe two. If you, if, if it's one of those places where you can have two harvests or if you grow your rice crop and then you grow your barley crop or your millet or whatever, but you can have good years and you can have bad years and a bad year can mean not everybody on this farm. Is going to be able to eat this year. And that's not, a, that's not good. That's not something you want. And that can, and that can, you, the amount of labor you've got available on your farm changes because sometimes you've got lots of adults, but a few years later, some of those adults have moved on. Those, the older kids have moved on to their own farm and there are new kids, new babies, and they're not contributing much. And maybe the older people, they're now retired. So the amount of labor you have can vary from year to year. So you're going to have good years, you're going to have bad years. And one of the ways that's kind of mitigated is by when you have plenty, and you may have a situation where you've got lots of labor on your farm because everyone's nice and adult and stuff, not many dependent kids. Well, you've got lots of, lots of food. You feast your neighbors. Apart from everything else, it's hard to store the food. But you feast your neighbors. You're generous to them. And when you have a bad year and things aren't so good, then you can expect your neighbors to do the same back to you. So those bonds become really, really strong between the villages. They start to see themselves as a unit. You have that thing of all hands on deck, which is more of a naval, <laughs> more of a naval thing there. But when someone's got a harvest, like the, the person who owns the peach trees, Or they've got the peach trees in their land. And there's our bumper harvest of peaches. And you have to deal with all the peaches right now or they'll just rot. Everyone in the village gets involved. And everyone in the village benefits. But that means that everyone in the village sees themselves as we are all in the same boat. We are all the same people. And they become very kind of close-knit which can be interesting when some wandering ronin turns up or when the tax collectors turn up or when you know player character clan samurai turn up that's going to really affect their attitude towards those people cuz they're outside of these strong bonds yeah
1: right and and just the preservation of a lot of kinds of food is really a lot of work so and and it has to be done fast. You have to do it whenever, when it's right. <laughs> and so uh, that means everybody's working side by side on this one person's land who has this thing. And then maybe they'll work on somebody else's land on something else.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think a similar thing in, in Western, I think especially American, if I say barn raising, I think yeah. people know what I mean. And it's a, it, it's not so much the construction, but that kind of we need everyone in the village to be helping right now even though technically we're helping this one family first off we'll get some benefit but secondly we know that when it's our turn everyone will help us Mm -hmm. and yeah and, and then the player characters turn up and the villagers don't have any conception of that for them at all, you are not part of this tight knit so we tight knit society, so we're not quite sure how to make how to how to deal with you
1: mm-hmm, and you're interrupting us
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got stuff to do, man
1: that's a thing, yeah, you know, we're supposed to be you know harvesting peaches on on George's tree over here, and now you're having us all go run searching the countryside for your missing whoever, yeah but we're supposed to be harvesting peaches.
0: I'm sure the imperial prince is very important, but we've got peaches to look after.
1: (laughs) It is much more important to them to get their peaches. Yeah, yeah. So types of people that you might find in a village. It's not that there are no samurai in villages ever. In the Edo period in Japan, in order to control the samurai, the Tokugawa shogunate, Forced, compelled almost all the samurai into cities. But there's no compelling reason for that necessarily to be so in, in Rokugan. Uh, though sometimes you'll see a mention saying, Samurai are only insidious. And i like, what's going to make the samurai stay in cities? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. A, a rural samurai, samurai from rural areas, very far from urban cultured life, are called Goshi. In a time of peace, a samurai who is given control to administer a village, this would generally be a a larger village or a special village, who's kind of serving in that role as a governor might, is called a sonshu. A very large village might even have one or two yuriki who work for the sonshu. These would be samurai who basically have always administered this bit of land they're in charge of making sure that the taxes get in and communicating with the outside worlds. and they're just like local administrators and then when there is war they get picked up and sent to fight
0: yeah with with the retainers that they are supposed to have because of their status and all that kind of useful things yeah
1: Yes, if they're even big enough to have one. You know, yeah. it's a really small yeah. village, they might not have retainers. It might just be, oh, okay, we'll leave our little village of, you know, 15 houses and go fight for you, and then we'll come back.
0: hmm The Haman headman or headwoman, that's going to be the person who's in charge of governing the village. They're usually the interface between the samurai population and the villagers, the go-between if you like that's the shoya and they're likely to have the nicest house not because necessarily so that they can have the nicest house to live in it's just that if there's a sudden arriving samurai their job is to kind of have a place that that samurai can sleep overnight that isn't a little tiny peasant shack and thus beneath the dignity of the samurai and thus likely to make the samurai very angry which could lead to all sorts of unpleasantness. So the headman's house is likely to be the nicest one precisely so that they can give it up for a traveling samurai or or th- or five depending on the size of your PC group. <laughs> Obviously you'll find other folks out there. You're likely to have like the matriarch and caregiver, you know, old granny who knows how to fix everybody and knows everyone's business and has birthed pretty much every child in the village for approximately forever. As far as everyone can tell, you're going to have the town gossip, which can be good or bad. There'll be some kind of enforcement. I mean, if, if, if the village is particularly small, you probably won't. This will be everybody would look out for everybody else, but beyond a certain size, you may well have some kind of patrol, some kind of night watchman, that sort of thing. most villages are going to have some kind of shrine, nearby or at least some kind of holy area so there's very likely to be a monk or two either living in the village or living in that small shrine nearby easy to find Poachers are quite likely poachers scouts hunters people who go out into the wilds and find things not necessarily what they should they can also be a, a great source of plot hooks incidentally because they they'd be the types who kind of find things that perhaps the other villagers being rather more stay at home, wouldn't have come across. You may also end up with people with gambling problems, and there'll be gamblers here and there. I think that's something that's more likely to happen with a larger village. You're more likely to get that kind of problem. More people hanging around with not much to do except roll some dice and get into trouble. Always fun. You may find the occasional Heyman who's actually quite literate. A headman is very likely to be literate and their children, because again their job is to be the go-between between the samurai and the farming population. And you could have people who have all sorts of interests. And of course, a lot of farmers, crafters, children, stroppy teenagers, <laughs> young couple who are just kind of maybe being in love, but not everyone quite approves. There's so many sorts of people that you could find.
1: Just to give you some ideas of, you know, when you're, because a city kind of, uh, the population tends to go into a big blur. There's so many, but each individual character in a village ends up making a, a big impression when you're talking about you are players entering a, a small village. All of these people are are, are important. You know, they're, they're pieces of the puzzle of what's going on in that village. I want to talk about village life and what it is like in a village. And L5R players, we, we've kind of touched on this before but l5r game masters i should say kind of seem to take two approaches to their games because in their games you want to play the players are playing magical samurai i mean yeah that's what what you are if you're playing l5r some game masters want to make their villages very sad (laughs) like like Mm. Uh, have, a, have a very despairing vibe, play up the, the difficulties of life as a villager. And other game masters kind of want to not play up the difficulties of life as villagers or keep it uh, more, more, more peaceful. It's not trying to be any kind of dystopian anything. However, if you think of the world and how it would work, you can have both of these being valid interpretations of Rokugan. Because the life in a village is extremely variable, depending on whether the village is in a time of peace or if it is in a time of war. Mm -hmm. In times of peace, having a bunch of military men all close and packed together, able to bump shoulders with each other and tempers flaring and stuff because there's nothing to do, is a problem. Four lords. You've got a bunch of samurai who don't have anything to fight. This, this is a problem in times of peace. During times of peace, samurai are going to be pushed out into the rural regions, which separates them from each other, basically. It doesn't keep them all back together. It gives them jobs ruling over the villages of Shanshu, or it gives them jobs patrolling around the countryside. And at first, this could be bad for the villages, but... This means that any bandits that are in the area are going to be dealt with by the samurai because they're there looking for problems to deal with. Yeah. There will also be fewer samurai who are deserters or stuff that have been driven into banditry themselves because they are not wanting to be killed in the war. Lords have time to address grievances. They are more likely to be looking at their books. They have time. They are not on the battlefield. They are sitting around in their halls. So if you have a grievance as a village, they're more likely to notice differences in crop yields, uh, like we talked about. Um, They're more likely to be interested in your complaints if you bring them forward, which means if problems come up, they're more likely to be investigated by samurai.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: And... During this time, monks can travel freely, which means, you know, some of the spiritual threats can be at least noticed by monks, because there can go all through the countryside. Yep. Young, healthy folks who would be Ashigaru, called up to be Ashigaru to be fighting the wars, are now instead with their families and they're farming and crafting. And that means more population in the villages, which means better rice harvests. And in general, at those times, the lords don't need as much cash to be funding their war efforts. Yeah, right, and replacing all the weapons. So there's not a drive to get uh, ring as much taxes out of the population as possible. Okay, yeah, now that's in times of peace. And I'm not saying it's utopia. And you can always have in peaceful times, you know, a bad lord or bad yeah. situation. But I'm saying overall the vibe of Rokugan would be would be pretty peaceful. In times of war that is not going to be the case. No. Um during the times of war, the samurai are going to be concentrated in the cities because they need to be able to muster from there and they'll be following the troops even if they're not actively deployed. They will be close at hand to be ready to be deployed, which means concentrating them in the cities. That leaves the village only under the control of the Shoya or headmen. There's more bandits in the area, deserters, people who are newly dismissed after a, a battle has disbanded the army. The remnants of broken armies mm. especially are a huge source of of bandits. Yeah. These are people who are angry, they've lost. Nobody's supporting them. Maybe their lord has been killed. They have no experience and no time to learn how to farm. And they are eager to keep their lifestyle, keep keep a lifestyle. So these are the people who are going to be bandits. And you can get hundreds and hundreds of bandits in a place. It, it doesn't have to just be like a couple bandits. Mm. Um, during times of war, all but the very old or the very young in the village, uh, and and potentially mothers, nursing, that sort of thing, are going to be gone. So there's only going to be old people and very young people, but not combatants, specifically not combatants. But the combatants are also the healthiest farm workers. So they're not going to be able to, you know, the people who are there not aren't, aren't going to be able to do as well against the bandits. They're not going to be doing as well in the intense labor resource. You know, if, if your village is mining or farming or um, lumbering or whatever it is, the healthiest, strongest people will be gone. So you're not going to be able to um, pull in as much. Your lords, on the other hand, need as much koku as they can wring out of you because they need to fund their war effort. So, you know, good luck with that. Yeah. During these times of war, if you are near a a border, your village could be overrun by the enemy side. And even though in Rokugan, it is not to anyone's advantage to slaughter the villages, um, it happens. Yeah. Especially like if your village was thought to be harboring soldiers of the other side, um, that, that can totally happen. Or if... You're, you're trying to defend a, a tax harvest that you are obligated to do. We've seen that in the storyline. We've seen villages overrun for their tax harvest and food, and the villagers defend it because they have to. During a time of war, there aren't going to be monks and shiginja wandering the countryside dealing with issues. And there's going to be a large amount of death in the area, because all around, because it's a war, which means that spiritual threats are more likely to go unnoticed for a long period of time and, you know, form in the first place because you got a lot of uncleanliness and stuff. So that's how you pick your scale on how bad you want your village to be in your campaign. Make it a time of war, and it is pretty bad.
0: (laughs) I mean, it also depends on the individual clans. It depends on the individual lords in charge the specific circumstances but that's the big one the peace the war peace axis is going to be a really really big one like in times of peace the lord has the time effort and tax money to make large infrastructure investments Mm -hmm. like let's build that bridge that we need or let's really let's revamp all our water management systems they're not going to do that in time of war Lots of things are gonna get neglected and stop working, and then suddenly that village is now cut off because that the bridge has stopped being useful, and so on and so on so yeah that's that's a really good way of deciding what is life in this village at this moment and and it can change due to stuff that's completely beyond their control, which is the lion clan decided to fight the crane clan or the unicorn clan decided to fight the dragon clan or whoever so having talked about. The way, you know, you can vary the, how good or bad life is in the village due to like war and peace. Let's have a look at the, say the duties of the Sonsho and the Uriki. So those are going to be the samurai and high ranking Haman, their deputies. So they can be samurai deputies. They can be high ranking Haman deputies, depending on the village. What do they do? What, what's their job? So the Sonsho, is their job is to protect the land, administer justice. So they're going to be the first port of call for dealing with with crime and and settlements of disputes between villagers and villagers. They also need to prepare the taxes and the records, specifically the records of the taxes, but also births and deaths and, and all that sort of stuff. They also need to support religious obligations and festivals. Festivals aren't just for fun. They're actually important spiritual things that are good for the morale of the villagers but are also important in many cases in making sure that the elemental balances around your particular area are kept in check and the local kami or the local river isn't angered and doesn't flood the fields in the wrong way. Very important stuff. And they are also very likely to be the main person in charge of commissioning large public works so the stuff I was talking about before, like, let's get that bridge built, let's revamp our irrigation system, those sorts of things, they're likely to be the Sonsho supported by their Yuriki. These can be done by Bushi or by courtiers or whoever, really.
1: Right. It's it's important to know that it doesn't just have to be a Bushi, that there is a yeah. role for courtiers not in court. These jobs, you know, settling disputes between villages or preparing taxes, festivals, public works and stuff are not combat jobs. No. Um, And it is just as possible for a Shanshu to be a courtier as it is for them to be a Bushi. You know, sometimes there's this Idea that courtiers only live in cities and courts, and that's uh, the definition of what a courtier is and does is much broader than that. And this is something that that courtiers can do too.
0: I have to say, one of the things I've often said that I like about Fifth Edition is that it is way easier to have a bushy who's good at courtiering or a courtier who's good at bushying, because in many ways, someone's in charge of a village. They also have to be in charge of defending the village and training Ashigaro, and and they have, they've got a broad range, really. I mean, a, a samurai in charge of a village, a Sonshaw, has got a quite broad range of abilities that they need. What school they come from, whether it's a bushi school or a courtier school, they're going to be want to be good at those other things, but that it's just as easily able to come from a courtier-type school and do that job very well.
1: Well, you're forgetting one little, one little thing that, that is important, and I thought I'd... I mentioned it. When you're sanshu, you're usually there with your family. Yeah. So, your spouse is a samurai too. So, a, a very common setup you would find is that one spouse is a bushi, is a, a fighter and will focus on fighting, but that spouse who is a fighter is going to be the one who's called up during times of war for field operations or other stuff, going to be called away during summer, during fighting season. The other spouse is doing all these courtier things. They still have samurai duties to the village, though it can in Rokugan be either direction, be the bushi or or the courtier, will be able to be doing all these things and will be administering in the village and doing everything while their spouse is away.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So, so that's why it's it's important to realize that both in a couple, both people are working mm-hmm. for the village. If a samurai couple is in charge of the village, both people are working for the village. Um, they just will not necessarily have the same duties. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I don't know. Sometimes we we think that all samurai are single, and I, I think that we yeah yeah not, that families are involved, <laughs> right? So uh, Ashikaru, important part of the village, uh, or at least how what how they interact with village life is important because they come mm. encased. Ashikaru are semi professional. Uh, They are not elite soldiers that make up the bulk of fighting forces in Rokugan. There are different kinds of ashigaru. There are seasonal ashigaru. Seasonal ashigaru fight in between spring planting and autumn harvesting. Okay? This is going to be the bulk of your ashigaru because you need... You need... Resources You need people to be planting and harvesting. Like we yeah, talked yeah. about how labor-intensive rice growing is. This is going to be the bulk of your ashigaru, uh, are going to be seasonal ashigaru. And this is often a significant portion of the young, healthy, un- and unmarried men, and potentially unmarried women in your village will be ashigaru. The other kind of ashigaru are professional ashigaru. And they are always in their units. They are soldiers. They are just not elite soldiers like samurai. Now, what was used in Japan varied a lot mm. because uh, it, time periods were so different. Yeah. But when you see the most ashigaru in Japan and you see them talked about in that period, you're talking about uh, the Sengoku Jidai, which was professional ashigaru. But that is that period was really... Um, not very long term sustainable in terms of the amount of fighting that was going on. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. You do need these people planting and growing. So seasonal ashigaru would be more common.
0: Yeah. I mean, the when you had them non-seasonal when they were professionals, they would very often take on the kind of patrolling type roles in between actual battles, you know, when there's so they would they would when in times of relative peace, even the Sengoku Jidai, you'd have a in a particular area. No one's fighting us right now, so what are we doing with our soldiers? Well, we're patrolling and we're we're keeping the peace and we're doing law enforcement with them. Mm-hmm. But then they're then yeah. available for. Oh no, we're being invaded, or oh no, we're invading, depending.
1: <laughs> right. In addition, there is there are conscripts, and conscripts are. Forces that are levied from the peasants in the Lord's land. So these are not professional soldiers. They don't receive training, even seasonal ones. These are just everybody gets pulled out of the village that can move with a spear in their hands. And they are placed with a spear in the hands in the front lines to fight.
0: Yep. This end is the point. You end. That's your training. On you go.
1: Right. And so when you get the conscripts called up, the villages are stripped. You know, they really are just the people who can't can't fight at all, like we talked in times of war. So when it, when you're talking about conscripts being pulled up, then a lot of bad things happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, so that's Ashigeru, a very important part of the village life and, and who you're going to find in a village. So the last thing we're going to look at today, see so kind of an overview. We're going to go into slightly more detail in a later episode but we're going to give a quick seasonal overview of a village so you can get an idea of what's going on if your characters are walking into a village at a particular time of year
1: right because every, everything that happens in the village is, is seasonal
0: seasonal and cyclical so spring is going to be the planting and replanting of rice and depending on exactly where you are other crops very important time of year very labor intensive
1: right Summer is weeding. It's clearing insects. Uh, some replanting. It can be a second replanting. We'll talk about rice growing next episode. It can be preparing fertilizer. It's also a time when trade happens and repairing infrastructure and making buildings. This time, the Ashigaru are at war or they are called up for training. So, uh, that would, you know, be your, your downtime, but there's still lots to do. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it is less intensive, but it's like much, it's kind of, this is what you get into like a daily grind, sounds like. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to late summer, you've got your early harvests, depending on the precise climate and the exact crops being, being done. Some foraging, so gathering plants from nature. Food preservation is very important. And in warm climates, like the crab lands, you're going to have your second planting season.
1: In autumn, you're going to have harvesting of rice and grains, then the process of winnowing, polishing, and storing it, and much, much food preservation tasks because it's yes. no, no good. So that's, that's, a, that's a really important labor-intensive period.
0: Yes. You, you want your harvest. That harvest has to last you the rest of the year. So you've got to be able to store it in some way. And then you settle down for winter. Very little in the way of agriculture, obviously. But that's when a lot of people are indoors crafting. So things like weaving, making clothes, basket weaving and pottery, making materials for use during the rest of the year, and possibly crafting to make things for trade during the summer.
1: And then in the early spring... It's time to fertilize and prepare the soil and the patties for the next planting season. And as I said, we'll talk about rice growing season and how rice works in our next episode. Yeah. That's it for us this week. We wanted to give a call out to our sister podcast and patrons, our two actual role-playing podcasts, uh, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife, as well as our friends at D20 Radio.
0: Our content is funded by the community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as our website, where you can see and store long-term information, some of the podcasts, RPG tools, forums, and more. For our patrons, we've got special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, early access to actual play podcasts, and more.
1: Online, you can find us at our website, which is courtgamespod.com, on Twitter at twitter.com, slash court games pod and on patreon at patreon.com slash court games but that's it for us this week this is Kakita Kaori may the fortunes favor you
0: and I've been Corva. and until we meet again keep your jade handy